0: Didn't know the words of the songs and that testimony would hit me so hard this morning. We got a hard topic today. It's just sexual morality. And Phyllis, I am so thankful that you entrusted yourself to this body to allow us to hear your story. What took a a little over seven minutes for you to tell, it took 20 years for you to experience. We see the devastation that sin causes. The devastation that sin has in a life, in a marriage, in in a family. And it's hard. It's hard to look at that and say is it possible is it possible that the gospel can shine through it? And that's what's beautiful about God. God has this way of taking the ugly things in our life and doing something beautiful. The gospel can shine even through when mistakes are made in a dramatic way. Today we're going to be talking about sexual sins. We're going to talk about sexual morality and what God wants for us. But we're going to talk about the negative side of things as well. And what we're going to do is we're going to do this in two parts. Part one is that we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and what our goal is is to hear the heart of God for us to listen to what God has to say in terms of what he wants for his church, what he wants for those that wear the name of Christ. But then in part two, we're going to deal with the specific issue of homosexuality. <clears throat> and the reason that we're doing that is because it's not only hitting the headlines of, the, uh, of, of society, but it is something that is a struggle deep within the church as well. There are many people that have same-sex attractions uh, in their families, in their life, with students. I mean, there's all, it's all cross-sections of life, and so I want us to hear the heart of God in regards to that topic. But let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach this sensitive topic, I pray, Father, that your spirit would wrap your arms around us, that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us, that you would motivate us, that you would help us to first hear your heart and then help us to see how we can reach out in grace to those that are around us. And so, Lord, I pray that you take complete control of this message, and we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 20. I will tell you that we're going to be, we can't do a thorough exposition of the passage, but we will be hitting the high points of the passage due to the, 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 the amount of information we need to talk through today. But let's look at the heart of God, and we start in verse 9 and 10, and what we see in verse 9 and 10 is the problem that Paul had in his day and age, and you'll notice that what Paul mentions is, is a problem that's still existent today. It says this, Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's the context in which Paul is writing with the, to the church. He wants them to know, here's the world. This is the context of the culture that you live in. And what he says of this culture is that it is an unrighteous society. He says this is unrighteousness. The word unrighteous could also be translated wicked. It is a wicked society. Now, why such harsh terms and why, why state it in that way? Well, it's in contrast to God. God is a holy God. God is a perfect God. God is a pure God. And these are things that are in contrast to God. And the tense is that these are the continual practices of society. Now, we know that they're lost because he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God And we know that they're wicked because of the sins that he specifically addresses. So, why does Paul start in this passage mention these things? I think he does it because in a few moments, he's going to go to the church and say, not only is this a problem in our society, it is a problem within the church. The church is not pure and there needs to be a purity within the church. Actually flip over to verse 15 just so that you understand the context of the problem. Notice what he says here. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, what we see here in this passage is Paul's addressing a problem. And the problem is that the believers were guilty of sexual sins within the church and the church it didn't seem to be bothered by it. If you were to go back one chapter, in chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, we get even more context because this is what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans, those that are lost. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. So, how can an incest relationship happen within the church and nobody flinch? Well, my friends, this is what happens when the church loses its saltiness. That happens. In other words, the church is to be countercultural. By virtue of the values that we hold, by virtue of the fact that we are marching by God's orders and His parameters and His boundaries in our life. Automatically puts us a different place than the mainstream of culture. And when culture and the church look exactly the same, we, the church, are out of alignment. And this is what Paul was addressing in his church, and he is saying, You've lost your saltiness. You've allowed this sin to come in. Notice the question that he asked. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Great question. So then I take them, so then take. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members to a prostitute? And then he goes on in the passage and he says you become one flesh with them. So what is the teaching? We got all kinds of things that we could dive in here. But here's the main teaching I want you to see. The term one flesh is actually the positive phrase that God uses back in the Old Testament to teach what marriage is to be about. Remember Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? Before the fall of man, God instituted this thing called marriage between one man and one woman. And he says, and then you're going to come together and you are going to become one flesh. And the idea that, uh, behind this is that it's not a physical act. No, it's not merely a physical act. It is a spiritual act. It is two people with two personalities with a commitment and a bond with each other, a desire that we would be intimate with each other and that that person alone. And, And because those individuals have a love for God, when they come together, it acts as a glue in the marriage. And so this is God's design that God would make one flesh, husband and wife. But what happened in this society is that there were those that were playing the field. They had one on the side. They had somebody else. Or maybe they were having sex outside of marriage before there was that commitment and that bond. And what was happening is, is the glue that was supposed to hold them together was being diluted by sinful activity. And he says, Shall this be? No way! No way! Because you are joining yourself, the Spirit of God living inside of you. You're joining yourself with someone outside of marriage, and it is wrong. See, here's the principle that Paul is teaching here. What we do with our bodies as believers involves a holy God as well, because He puts His Spirit living within us. And whatever we do, we take Christ with us. We involve the Holy Spirit. Church, my question for us in evaluation is, are we allowing the world to creep into the church? I have a fear. I have a fear that too often we just go through the motions of church and we come to church and we might sing a song and we might go to community group and we keep everything at arm's distance and we keep it shallow and we don't get to a deeper level where we talk about what's really going on inside of us and as a result we live a facade and when we live this facade all of a sudden there are secret things that are occurring that nobody else knows about and that's where the thought lies it starts with the thought and it goes to a glance and then it goes to an affair and it goes to an addiction and these are the things that creep in within the church because we allow it to be at arm's distance what God wants is for us to realize that our bodies have the Holy Spirit and we're involving God as well this is the problem that Paul's addressing in his day now, let me just say this. Before we move on from the problem, verse 10 does label homosexuality as a sin. In our world today, many would argue that God has created this and them this way if this is their their struggle and they have a hard time saying hey this isn't a sin because this is how God created me I want you to know we're going to come back a little bit later and address that issue but what I want you to know if that is your struggle please know that God does love you he does love you and he wants you to understand his heart So we move on in verse 11, and we see the pursuit. There's a problem, but here's the gospel. Here's where the gospel comes in the midst of the problem. He says this, and such were some of you. All that list of sins. He says, that's the way you were. Some of you were like that. But then notice what happened. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our living God. What a beautiful thing for this transformation to take place because this was the past and you were washed. In other words, God, this is the the description of our salvation. When we finally came to realize Jesus Christ is our Savior, it says he picked us up and he washed us. He washed us clean. He sanctified us. In other words, He set us apart for a noble purpose, and He justified us, meaning that He gave us a new start. Anybody thankful for a new start? A new start, a new beginning, a new righteousness in which He had put upon us through His Holy Spirit. And what happens here is it's kind of like the sculptor. Once we come to faith in Christ, we are on the sculptor's block and what the Holy Spirit does, and God with the hammer of His Word and the chisel of His Holy Spirit, He starts move, uh, forming something in us. And at first, you can't see what that sculptor block is gonna look like, but we see what God is developing. After time, certain habits fall to the wayside and certain attitudes, and God starts to finally chisel it. And by the end of this life, what we realize is that it's Christ. That's what He's forming. Christ in us and it's a lifelong process and it's not an easy process and we go through a lot of trials a lot of pain but we go through that and that's what he wants to do and that's the beauty of the pursuit of God in us we got a problem we got a pursuit but take a look at the priority in the next verses What's interesting in verse 11 is that the Apostle Paul says, you're free. You've been set free. Now there was a problem, though, because some of the believers took that freedom and went to an extreme. And they were almost giving themselves license to do things. Now we understand what that's like. It was the Jewish believers at that time, and many of them were raised on do not do this. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do not do this. And then they realize they're free in Christ, and then all of a sudden, I can drink this. I can do this. I can be this. And they found this freedom, and the pendulum swings to the other side. Now, some of us understand that because we were, gra- we were raised in some form of a legalistic background. Anybody here? There, any former legalist? Where we were told, don't do this, don't do this. And then when we understand our freedom, the pendulum swings. And it's in the context of this, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated or controlled by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us to power. Now there are so many things I could dive into here, but here's the one verse I want you to understand. It says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This tells us what our priority is. Our priority is this. Our bodies are to be used for the pleasure of God, not for us. Let that sink in. Our bodies are to be used for the pleasure of God, not us. See, we live in a society where we are driven by what brings pleasure to me. It's about me. It's about my desires. And what God is saying, that's not the case. David Platt in his book makes this quote. He says, but what if our bodies have not ultimately been created for self-gratification? What if our bodies have actually been created for God-glorification? And even better, what if God-glorification is actually the way to experience the greatest satisfactions in our bodies? You see, the key to true joy in our life is when we use our bodies for the glory of God and the greatest joy comes as a result of that. The fact is God wants our best and he has designed our bodies for our good but for his glory. He has designed us that way. And because of that, God puts boundaries in our life. You know, his word gives boundaries. It always does what it needs to do to provide for us and to protect us. Before I knew Christ, I thought God just had a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts. But what I realized is really wills and won'ts. And this is what I should do and this is what I shouldn't do. And God gives that because he loves us. It's like the parent that tells their kid, you're not 16, you're only 8. It's not safe to drive the car yet. No, I will not give you the keys to the car. But then I really want to drive right now. No, because I know what's best for you. Boundaries. My friends, God gives us boundaries. So that's our priority, that our bodies are to be used for him. Well, what's the proper view? He closes this passage in verse 18. He says this, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a man commits or a person commits, is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your bodies is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. Now what we learn from this concluding passage is that the Christ followers are to be counter-cultural in the sense that we are pure like God is pure. That's how we're countercultural. When we have marriages that are purely devoted to one another, when we have relationships that are within the boundaries of God, then all of a sudden we arise and stand up as an example of what God wants us to be, and we become countercultural. But my friends, there are practical steps that we need to take in this passage. Did you catch them? Here's step number one. Flee immorality. You want to save your marriage? You want to save just your integrity as an individual? Flee from the things that hurt you. I don't have to give the list of temptations to you because you're very well acquainted to them. In fact, your temptations might look very different than mine, but what you need to do is set up boundaries so that you do not get close to the area of the temptation. Find out where that temptation is and remove yourself several steps from that temptation. Flee from that temptation. Step two, treat your body as a temple. Treat your body as a temple. Whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we watch, whatever we do, we keep this in view. When I was a youth pastor, I, I, I ran a G rated uh, youth ministry. And I told my kids, I said, I got three G questions for you to keep it G rated in your life. Here's the first G question Is it good? About your weight, yourself. You got to be, you gotta, no one can think for you. You got to think because you're the one right there at the moment. Is it really good? Now, I wish I would have thought of this question this week. I probably wouldn't have eaten that Five Guys burger and fries. Probably would have said, well, yeah, it is good, but it's not good for me. So the second question, what grabs you? I know that sounds a little weird, but what's your motivation? What's your motivation? What's grabbing your heart? What's tugging on you? And what is the motivation? Is it for your pride? Is it for your popularity? Is it for your own selfish desires? When you're on that computer and you're doing research for work and there's something pops up and you're thinking about tapping upon that, you ask yourself, is it, what's your your motivation here? And go back to the first question, is it good? See, these are the things that govern our life. And here's the third question, does it glorify God? Does it glorify God? And this is where we set up boundaries for ourselves. We have positive boundaries, we have negative boundaries. For me, I know it glorifies God when I have time with God, when I have time to confess my sins, when I have time to meditate on God's Word and allow His Spirit to speak to me. I know it's a positive boundary when I'm a servant of God to those that are around me. I know it's a positive boundary that God wants for me to be sacrificial and giving. Those are the positive boundaries, some of them in my life. But here's some of the negatives. I know I should avoid certain foods because it'll harm this temple. I know I need to avoid movies with nudity and language that just affects me. I know that I need to watch my words because I may say things that may not edify those around me because I speak so many words. It's my profession. That's some of my boundaries. What are yours? We are to treat our body as a temple. We flee, we treat our body as a temple, and finally, we live with the reality that I belong to God. You have been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. It doesn't matter what you do. You are to do it for the glory of God. You are to realize that you belong to Christ. All that you have, all that you are, all that you do, You are God's. So this is the heart of God. This is what he wants in terms of our morality. So let's talk about homosexuality for a minute. Alan Edwards is a pastor who deeply loves his wife, Leanne, and he is also a man, though, that grew up in the church who had a strong same-sex attraction. In his story, he tells the dilemma of how he grew up in the church and later going to a Christian college and even in Christian college having hookups with other men because of this temptation. And so what he does is he tells his story, and I'm only going to play a fragment of it, but it's the part where he has a kind of a clarity, point of clarity in his life. And I want you to listen to his heart
1: and what he has to say. Everyone who tells the story of the cross-section of faith and homosexuality tells it differently. Some people have been hurt by the church and have abandoned Christianity. Others have sought uh, earnestly, and I think authentically, to reconcile homosexuality with Christianity. Um, And others coming into the church from outside often leave the homosexual lifestyle as a result of their faith. My story uh, fits in the lane of coming up in the church. Um, and wrestling with this identity question uh, throughout my young adult life. Think about the kind of Christian that makes you feel embarrassed to be a Christian, and then make him 14 years old, and that was me. Raging, fundamental, condemning people to hell kind of Christian. My identity was built on being the good Christian kid. And maybe that doesn't connect with you, but but we all have done this thing where we build the tower of our identity around something, right? And so uh, I I did this double life uh, in my adolescence of portraying myself as not just a good Christian kid, but the best Christian kid, while on the inside recognizing that there was a conflict between what I believed, what I knew to be true, and what I felt very deeply. I can remember lying on my bed at the age of 14 or 15, uh, shaking my head back and forth and saying, I am gay. Do you know what every gay Christian kid, you know what verse every gay Christian, Christian kid knows? Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus you shall not lie with a man as with a woman, it is an abomination, an abomination. I'm an abomination." I was probably 16 when my parents found the gay pornography on the family computer, and we sat down for the most painful and wonderful conversation on the nice furniture in the living room that I've ever had with my parents. Uh, This was not an it-gets-better moment in our culture in the mid-late 90s, and we didn't know what to do. In order to protect me, uh, my parents Inadvertently, but I think somewhat intentionally communicated that this is something we need to keep secret and so I was shuttled from counselor to counselor over the last three years of high school uh, practicing cognitive behavioral therapy, reparative therapy, biblical counseling to to a lesser extent uh, trying to fix me. Most of the counseling was revolved around self-esteem. I learned two things uh, in this season of my life. First, Uh, same-sex attraction is shameful and I need to keep it hidden, and two, I was sick and I needed to get better. And it was believing those two things that I packed my bags as an 18-year-old and went off to a small conservative Christian college in rural western Pennsylvania with great big neo-gothic buildings surrounding a pristine quad that we weren't allowed to walk on. And something happened to my identity at this point. When you build your identity around being the good Christian kid in your public high school and then you go to Christian school and the social stratosphere changes because in high school the cool kids smoked and drank drank, and I was the good Christian kid, but in college the cool kids were also Christians except for they all played acoustic guitar. <laughs> I. Thank you that you're laughing. It really helps. I don't want to do this. (laughs) Woo! Okay, sorry, we're back. I couldn't out-Christian the Christian kids. And so I swung from this kind of legalistic, fundamental Christianity to what I thought was the better Christianity, this kind of authentic, gritty, yeah, man, let's talk about real things, man, Christianity. The truth was, it was much of a false identity as the original because two things happened. One good, one negative in this pendulum swing, the good thing that happened. I started to admit that I was messy and broken, and I wasn't rejected, I wasn't ostracized, I was actually loved and encouraged by guys in my fraternity, by people I worked with in the theater department. Um, But the the negative thing that happened was, in kind of embracing this gritty Christianity, I I wasn't really trying to do anything about my use of pornography. Um, It's also in this period of time that I started hooking up with people and fooling around with guys after drinking too much. And everything kind of came to a crux in my senior year of college. Um, I realized I had to do one of two things. I either had to reconcile homosexuality with Christianity, or I had to abandon Christianity. The Bible being the central text of the Christian faith, I went to the scriptures and did everything I could to reconcile homosexuality with Christianity. I studied gay liberation theologians like Gary Comstock. I read all the early articles on the Gay Christian Network. I studied Leviticus and Corinthians and Romans. Um, I read things from Exodus International. I did everything I could to reconcile the two. And here's a place where you and I might not be on the same page, but I firmly believe that you cannot derive from the plain meaning of the text of scripture that homosexual activity um, is okay. Uh, it's not my job today to try to be the apolog- apologist for that. Maybe someone else will do it. It's kind of important. But. Um, But I was convinced that I could not reconcile Christianity with uh, my homosexual desires and feelings. So I had to abandon Christianity, but I couldn't abandon Christianity because Jesus claimed to be God. And if he was God, then I had to take seriously what he said. It was very clear, if you read the Gospels, that Jesus receives the rest of the Holy Scriptures as divinely inspired and authoritative. So I set out to de-deify Jesus. If I could get past Jesus, I could live guilt-free. I can remember a night very clearly in my head. Uh, I had been on a pornography binge. I had arranged a hookup. And I went to, now this is going to date me in a very narrow band of time, I went to the computer lab to chat on AOL Instant Messenger (laughs) with a friend about Jesus. I mean, maybe it's not completely honest to say that this was the conversation, but this was a pivotal conversation. Hours working through the resurrection, because the resurrection was the thing that proved Jesus was God. Get past the resurrection, get past Jesus, get past the scripture. For me, the reliability of the text of the New Testament, the Witnessed both in and outside of the text of the New Testament the logic of the rise of Christianity in the east and west and unbeknownst to me at the time the spirit Battling for my heart like Paul says in Galatians 5 standing opposed to the desires of the heart um, Brought me to a point where I couldn't escape Jesus. I was pinned down like Abraham uh, No, which is the one that wrestled with the angel Jacob Jacob wrest- Thank you Good job, class. Uh, Jacob, wrestling with the angel, I had a limp. So I leave my college days convicted, but going through this cycle of binging and feeling guilty and repenting and resolving to do better, wash, rinse, repeat. And I I have my first apartment, I'm living on my own, and I'm trying to, now I'm gonna use a loaded word, suppress desires. People wanna know, is it fair for us to ask people to suppress desires. Here's a truth. We all have desires in our heart that we suppress. If we were a culture and a community that acted on every impulse, we wouldn't survive. Um, We live post-sexual revolution that says, as previous speakers have, have noted, that this desire is one that is psychologically unhealthy to suppress. But the gospel invites us to come and die And find life. If you want Christ, you take up your cross. If you want to find your life, you lose it. So I knew these things to be true. I believed them, Uh, but I had what uh, Ed Shaw in his book, Same-Sex Attraction in the Church, calls kitchen floor moments. Those moments when you are kind of reduced to a puddle of tears and self-pity on your kitchen floor, dorm room floor, bedroom floor. Very angry. Because I think that, um, looking back, I believed something else during this season. Uh, I believed that the gospel had saved me, that Jesus had saved me, saved by grace, but that it was now up to me to stay in grace. It was up to me now. And so for me to stay in grace, I had to become normal. I had to um, have a reorientation, and until I was rid of every homosexual desire in my heart, I would not be okay. And this all led to a a dinner in 2007 at the Park Classic Diner outside Jeanette, PA, with a friend and mentor named Tim Geiger, who worked for Harvest USA. Tim sat down with me, having gone through uh, his own battle with same-sex attraction. And, 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 And you know the point in the movie where the protagonist, like, everything kind of comes into pull focus And the protagonist has the realization and everything becomes crystal clear. This was my crystallizing moment. I sat there with Tim and I talked like a victim. This isn't fair. I don't like this. Why did this happen to me? I can even remember when I was 17, literally, embarrassingly, standing on a hilltop and shaking my fist at God. I was very frustrated. And Tim looked me in the eye and he said, you are going through what you're going through. You struggle with what you struggle with. Because you choose to. I was angry. I didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be gay. I was very angry. Didn't he know that I didn't want this? I was so angry that God used that anger to break me. And I realized that I had made conscious choices along the way. I had... um, I was getting something out of this. I had a heart that was looking for respect, affirmation, love, freedom from pain and suffering, encouragement, intimacy, and I was willingly looking for these things, and this is where I was going to look for them. I thought I had a mental health problem and needed to be healed. I thought I had a sex problem and needed to be normalized. I had a sin problem, and Tim told me, I needed repentance and grace. I needed repentance and grace. As hard of a truth as that is to hear, it is incredibly liberating. Repentance is a gift from God. It's a grace whereby a sinner is convicted in his heart and then lives differently outward. It is a work of the spirit. It is free. Tim helped me see something. One, that I was actually far worse than I thought I was. I didn't have a homosexuality problem. I didn't believe the gospel. I didn't believe my Lord. I didn't love his law. I was um, derelict in my connection to the church and worship. I was abusing food. I was abusing other people. I didn't really see pornography as abusing people, but like it totally is. Um, I was much worse than I thought I was which is a very sweet truth because that means the offer of the gospel is actually much sweeter. Jesus loves me is very sweet if you know how how great that love must be. Little sinners need a little savior with a little grace to bring them into a little relationship with a little God, but big sinners need a big savior with oceans and fountains of grace to bring them into a life-consuming relationship with an eternal and magnificent God. And so that brings me to the current season of my life. I think that today, the identity I was searching for in being either a gritty Christian or a super Christian has finally been reduced to in Christ. Uh, Paul says it in Galatians 2. um, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. John the Baptist says that I must decrease that he might increase. The Bible tells us that in him we live and move and have our very being. I wanted my identity to be all kinds of things that I did or felt or thought, but the gospel offered me identity in Christ, and that was very liberating to me and my conscience. Not every desire was changed the struggle wasn't over. I really am I'm sensitive to the fact that I could tell this story in a way that makes it seem past tense, but it's not. It's an ongoing story. It's a very present tense experience. Um, but I knew that to faithfully follow Christ, I didn't need to be perfect. How crazy is that? I, that's that's like Christianity 101. Uh, this season of my life is also marked by my desire to find a mate. Um I want to be, again, really sensitive about this because I think and know, I, I, I think that people who experience same-sex attraction uh, can, and, and want to be faithful to Christ can end in very different places in terms of their, their day-to-day lives. You've just heard from two godly men um, who, who, are, who, who are loved by Jesus and who deeply love Jesus, who at this point in their story are living in celibacy and singleness. Uh, Jesus and Paul uh, are, are, are men who lived in celibacy and singleness and, and s- talked about their beauty and talked about the troubles that come in life with marriage. In fact, Jesus said that some people uh, end up in celibacy because of the work of the kingdom and they, they are set free, Matthew 19, to, to be dedicated to the kingdom. But ever since I was a little boy, I wanted to be a a husband and a father, probably in reverse order. I probably wanted to be a father more than anything, which is, again, a new area that I had to practice repentance in, making an idol out of being a dad. Um, I was probably about 28 or 29 when I reconnected with an old friend from summer camp um, three years earlier. Uh, when I was, uh, addicted to pornography and hooking up with guys randomly, I also thought it was okay to apply for a full-time job at a Christian summer camp ministry. (laughs) And I didn't get it. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) She did. And I didn't like that she got it. Anyway, um, we reconnected. Her name's Leanne. And God had done a work of grace in my life. He'd done a work of grace in her life. And I was drawn to her, uh like Sam said, I've, I've wanted a best friend to ride off into the sunset with. And I wanted a partner in life, um, but, I, but I knew that that was going to be complicated with my background and my experience. Um, but Leanne made it so easy. i got to be really careful because I don't want to be super emotional, but I really love her. Um, she knew my whole story uh, before we ever started dating. She was actually on a fundraising and, and prayer support team for a ministry I worked in. We reconnected, um, felt liberated in our conscience, felt like this was a good fit, and so uh, we pursued our relationship and were married in about a year uh, from that that kind of reconnection. And uh, I think you, you might have questions about that, and so we'll just deal with those in the Q&A. Lots of people ask lots of personal questions, and I hate talking about them, but I also think it's good and helpful, so feel free. Um, <laughs> And so in the couple minutes I have here, I just want to say that that for folks who have walked my road, let me just give three suggestions to the church on how to to walk alongside us. First, we need to treat all sin like sin. Sexual sin, greed, anger, uh, neglect of injustice, um, (laughs) practicing injustice. We need to treat all sin like sin, and that means, one, we need to not get up in arms about particular sins, though sin has different magnitudes of impact. Uh, but two, we need to not be afraid to call what the Bible calls sin, sin. We we need to be winsome, but we also need to uh, be allegiant uh, to the Word of God. Secondly, we need to invite people to identify with Christ. That's the call of the gospel. Come and be in Christ. Uh, Marriage is not the end of Christian faith. Singleness is not the end of Christian faith. Work is not the end of Christian faith. Impact in your world is not the end of Christian faith. Union with Christ. We need to invite people to union with Christ and and let the chips fall where they do. And then thirdly, we need to make sure that we are a hospitable hospital. In the country club, we all know that we're all messed up, but we're pretending like we're not. In the hospital, the back of your robe is left hanging open and everybody can see all your business. (laughs) I don't mean that we need to wave the flag of our sin at every small group meeting, but we need to be a place where we know that we are in need and need to be made well. Elders, deacons, community group leaders, you need to set the tone by practicing repentance and and confession of sin. Confess your sins to one another, James writes, that you might be healed. but also we need to practice hospitality. I told my story today from the vantage point of identity. I didn't take time to tell it from the vantage point of relationship. The people who have welcomed me into their life along this road, Rob and Mark and Joel and Gabe and RJ and others, I I could tell story after story about godly men who have intimately loved me. Um, So we need to be hospitable, welcome each other in, And we need to recognize that we're not the country club, we're the hospital. And when we do that, we hold out identity with Christ. We treat all sin like sin, and we we practice being a hospitable hospital. I think we have a very winsome way to invite people who struggle with same-sex attraction into deeper identity with Christ. Thanks.